Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 52, Pride, part 13 of our Virtues and Vices series, recorded Monday, November 24th of 2014, with your hosts, Grant and Peter. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. And I'm Peter. And that silence is our lack of Brandon. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately he couldn't make it tonight. We're recording on a unusual day because we're actually recording this the week of thanksgiving and uh brandon just couldn't make yeah. it which normally is normally we record on thursdays which clearly is not going to work this week yeah turns out that's kind of bad yeah that's kind of thanksgiving we're not recording on thanksgiving on the yeah. other hand without brandon here there is nobody to stop granting me from you know running off on deep theological tangents so look forward to that hooray Convenient, given that we're talking about pride and wrapping up our Virtues and Vices series this time. Yep. Well, not the series, but the Sen part of it. Yeah. Hooray. All right. We do have a couple of things to talk about before we get into that, though. We do indeed. Uh, First things first, our fundraiser for the Bodana Group, still ongoing. Go to our website, savingthegamepodcast.org, or go to razoo.com slash story slash STG2014. Uh, or just look at the show notes for this episode. You'll see it there. We really need to help the Bodana group out, guys. Seriously, these guys are awesome. Yeah, they really are. They do a ton of good. I actually got to talk to my uh, men's group at church about them last week, which was really cool. And it's nice being able to say, listen, here's this group of people who use role-playing games to help traumatize children. And they're doing it with this very clinical uh, approach, using a cognitive therapy approach that involves role-playing games to help with sexual trauma and abuse. And it's awesome. Yeah. About a year ago, we talked to their executive director, Jack Birkenstock. That's probably our most mentioned episode. Um, yes. Episode number 25. To. Like, it so. really should be our most listened to, and I'm a little sad that it's not. Yeah. But seriously, go back to episode 25 and listen to that if you are not familiar with the Bodana Group. And if you've been a long-time listener, you're probably familiar with the Bodana Group, because we won't stop talking about them. Nope, we won't. And that's for a reason. Another group that we shouldn't stop talking about, but have been a little bit lax on talking about, is the folks over at Inroads Ministries. Um, as you know from uh, listening to our outro, if you don't stop it like right when we finish talking, uh, we're syndicated through them. They're definitely, you know, part of the kind of the wider geeky faith community. Yeah. They have articles. Um, they've got uh, the Game Store Profits podcast. Uh, they actually just celebrated their first anniversary. And uh, Mike Perna, the guy who founded the Inroads Ministry site, was on with us. And I don't have the episode number. Here. I don't either. But uh, he's on. If you go to our website and look under guest hosts, you'll find Mike there. We had a great time talking to Mike when he was on, and we have stayed in contact since. Uh, very cool guy. Uh, really good people over there. They've got yeah. um, good community uh, too. Yeah, uh, they have a, a Facebook group called the Tavern, and it's a it's a good group of people who are pretty thoughtful. A couple of those members actually came and hung out with us when we did our fiftieth episode. Um, they'd found us through the Tavern and through Inroads Ministries and asked some really good questions. So, you know, really like those people quite a bit. Uh, and they have some. I, 
you know, we talk about Game Store Profits for a bit, and we talk about Mike a fair bit. The entire Inroads Ministries website has a lot of good content. They have great articles. They have Game Store Profits. They have us. The, uh, they've started doing videos of their Inroads Plays series of D&D 5th Edition, which is really fun. So it's I didn't even know about that until Grant put it in the outline, so I'm going to have to go check that out at some yeah, point. Yeah, and this is because we're not doing enough to tell people, listen, you should go to Inroads. They're really cool. Yeah. Um, Mike and I keep trying to figure out ways to do more kind of as connected partners through Inroads. We've got some ideas. They just haven't taken off yet because Mike is incredibly busy. You're not exactly sitting around twiddling your thumbs yourself, so... Well, no, but it's also his site, so I can't just be like, all right, Mike, we're doing this. Yeah, you know. this is very true. <laughs> uh, and I would otherwise. So, Mike, when you hear this, if you need me to do something, just let me know, dude. Yeah, same goes for me. But we need to plug these guys more because Inroads Ministries has some really good content. I can't stress this enough. Their whole archive of material is very good. And I also want to stress, they are looking for contributors. So yeah. if you're the kind of person who writes interesting content in the geeky faith sphere, get ye over to Inroads Ministries yes. and contact them. And that URL is inroads, I-N-N, roadsministries.com. So having plugged them, I do want to encourage people as well to, if you haven't done so yet, take a minute to review us on iTunes or your preferred podcast network. Uh, and share us out if you haven't. We get a lot of joy in go having new listeners find out about us. Like yeah. it just it warms my heart like you would not believe, uh, and it's the kind of thing that keeps us going. Uh, we don't make money off the podcast, obviously, no. <laughs> but that oh hey here's a new listener. It's really cool. Maybe it appeals to our pride. I don't know, but it, there's a real joy in hearing someone say hey uh, found you, and I'm excited to listen to you. I don't think it even appeals to pride. It, it's more like, hey, a sense of community where, you know, wow. there's more of these people out there. A lot of them are really cool. Um, I've met probably, I don't know, three or four Saving the Game listeners, at uh, mostly at Fear the Con, actually. Yeah. And really enjoyed hanging out with them. Well, I mean, they're great people. Yeah, they, they have been. Consistently, whenever we've been contacted by our listeners, they've been wonderful folks. So... Yeah, please, you know, um, share it out, you know, tell more people about us, get in touch with us if you want to talk to us about anything. Uh, we're always glad to hear from you, not just on the live episodes. Absolutely. Okay, well, with that out of the way, should we move on to our scripture here? Yes, let's go ahead and get started with that. Uh, I'll take Jeremiah if you'd like. All right. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Okay, and our next passage is Matthew 23, 8-12. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And next we have Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. 
To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down upon everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And our last one is 1 Corinthians 3, 5-9. through 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So our topic tonight is pride. We had to save pride for last in our Virtues and Vices series. We'll have humility to cover next time, but... Pride is the final and ultimate of these seven deadly sins, and it's considered that for a reason. To draw from Adam Hamilton, um, each of the other six deadly sins puts something else on the throne of our lives. Uh, Money, sex, luxury, uh, that sort of thing. Pride puts us on the throne, and that throne belongs to God. Yep. There's an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity that I want to read. And I apologize to his estate. I'm going to say that this is fair use. I think it is, but it's worth reading. And this is why mere Christianity works so well for me uh, as kind of a starting point for understanding this sort of basic level of theology. It's really good at putting these sorts of things in perspective and explaining them in clear English. So this is from Lewis's chapter on pride in mere Christianity. Today I come to that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or that they cannot keep their head about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, uh, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. There's a lot in that. And, you know, the the whole chapter continues on. I'll probably quote from it a bit more. But it's a good kind of – it stresses just how important pride is. And the reason pride is so important is, as Peter said earlier, 
it puts us on a throne that should be reserved for God. Pride cannot coexist. Our pride basically says, I am important. I am the most important thing. I am specifically more important than you. <laughs> well, yes, and that's the thing. Your pride and my pride cannot coexist. You and I can have different forms of greed, right? But unless you and I are greedy for the same money, we are, it doesn't affect each other. You know, if we were both lecherous, unless we were after the same person, it doesn't affect each other. But in pride, the fact that you think you're more important than me or I think I'm more important than you. It affects us both every time we interact. Exactly. It can't stand any competition. It's why we so quickly jump on pride in others. Oh, he's so proud. It, we can't stand it because it inherently impl implies that that person is more important or thinks they're more important than us. And our pride cannot stand that. The problem is in God, we find something immeasurably and inconceivably bigger than us. And looking up at that, it puts us in our place. Unless you know God as something that so superior and know yourself as nothing in comparison to that, you can't know God. If you're always looking down, you can't look up. There's a reason Lewis calls this this completely anti-God state of mind. We cannot make room for God in our heads if we have pride. Yeah, and even if we have a small amount of it, it doesn't leave enough room. No, no amount is sufficient. We can't say this much and no more. The whole thing has to be gotten rid of. Does God forgive us for our pride? Certainly, but... If, that, he, if he didn't, heaven would be empty. <laughs> yes. Again, a point Lewis makes here. It's not as if God is somehow jealous trying to defend himself against our pride. It just doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, God the, is, the, the whole problem is on our end. Yes. we're basically. T it's basically saying we have these gifts from God and, oh, look, aren't I so awesome? All of our gifts that belong to God, if we raise them up and say, aha, look – God isn't jealous of those. He gave them to us. What does happen is it's exceedingly hard for him to get us to use them in his service. Yes. If we're so busy being puffed up over them. Exactly. Paul even actually uses puffed up in, I think, Romans. Um, you know, for I had exactly, no idea that particular turn of phrase was it, that old. It may just be a, a translation thing, but I've, I've seen it in at least one translation. Huh. Uh, puffed up instead of built up, uh, contrasted. It was interesting. Um, it's worth pointing out that we talk about pride as kind of this this root through pride that Adam fell. The first sin was Adam wanting to put himself and his wants and desires before those of God. And pride is often the source of the vast majority of our sins. We talk about these other sins as capital Vices. It's a word we've, or a term we've used throughout the history of our virtues and vices series. Pride is often the root of even those other capital vices. Uh, because I am proud, I do this other thing. And it's because I am more important than someone else 
who needs that. Um, I deserve it or because I'm more important or because I want to show just how wealthy I am. By the way, um, I'm going to throw something a little controversial out here, but um, pride plus greed in a religious context equals the prosperity gospel, which is I a think so. popular American heresy. Well, it's I don't know that I want to get into that too much here. But I think uh, I don't either for no other reason than we lack the time and the theological background. Well, yeah, and I'm not entirely familiar with it either, but I think it is. And this is one of the ways in which we talk about pride and we always kind of think of it as this haughty, overbearing, upfront pride. But because it is such a spirit, it is a purely spiritual sin. Pride works in very subtle ways to take the Joel Osteen prosperity gospel path here. Uh, follow that thread, this idea that God wants us to be happy, to have this earthly happiness, and that's his plan for us and nothing more, is for one thing, it discounts all of the other good that we could do if we were focused on, you know, more of the stuff we're specifically told to do in scripture. Yes, yes. <laughs> I, setting aside all of that, the reason it's so appealing is that it feeds the ego. It says, well, if I am well off, God is happy with me. God, I, I am a good person in God's eyes, or I am so important that God wants me to have these things that I want. And of course, there's the natural corollary to that, which is, oh, this person is suffering. This person is unhappy. They must not be as good a Christian as I am. Which, <laughs> it's, which is where it's the hard real to toxicity be, comes yeah, from. It's really hard to be compassionate when you have that kind of a worldview. Yeah, and I don't want to go off on that too much, but that's the the real danger of that sort of, well, let's call it what it is, that sort of heresy. Yeah. So, a few other points on pride, because I think we've driven home just how dangerous it is, and roughly speaking, what it is. It clouds our judgment in a lot of ways. Overconfidence is certainly a form of pride. Uh, I can do this instead of, I need help, or I don't have that talent or that's just beyond my capabilities i mean sure <laughs> when was it you remember back to your childhood when you thought oh yeah i can totally pull this off on my bike slash skateboard right. slash whatever and yeah wound up getting stitches yeah that and this pride. is not to be confused with you know pride is not the same thing as uh, a lack of mental development the yeah. part of our brain that really processes risk well doesn't develop until the early 20s usually which is why you have so many, in the U.S. at least, we have crazy college kids. Yeah, and a lot of young people in prison, too. And certainly it's important to be on top of those, and those are things that a sober-minded person, regardless of age, can understand. But a mistaken judgment that comes from simply, you know, uh, being foolish or something like that, not the same thing. Yeah, Believing that we are better or more important or the right person regardless of the qualifications of others, certainly indicative of pride. One of the other dangerous things that pride will do to us is it will convince us that we're important enough where we can go ahead and indulge in one of the other sins. Oh, it's okay. I can do it this time. Or it's essentially saying I'm more important than anyone or anything else, including, you know, whatever absolute moral standard exists. It is important, however, to distinguish between willful indulgence and making the best of an awful and or morally murky situation. Um, if you have to decide something under strain, under time pressure, 
and wind up making a bad decision, that is not the same as willfully choosing the wrong choice because, hey, I'm more important or that sounds right. like fun. Using, well, it's okay this once or, yeah. well, they don't deserve, I deserve this. How often have you told yourself that? One of one of the old, just kind of a good example of this that's often used as a joke you ever jokingly threaten a coworker over, you know, some silly thing that they did and then say no jury would convict me? Perfect analogy. Yeah. And one thing that I'm often guilty of is uh kind of disguising this with a sort of false humility. Don't think you're alone in that. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's like, oh, well, and I think I did it at the start of this episode actually. It was like, oh, well, you know, save the game. Clearly the worst thing on, you know, the Enroads Ministries site, right? Well, where where does false humility begin and self-deprecating humor begin? I mean, well, yeah, and there's that, but sometimes it very much teeters over into the false humility side of thing, where it's like, oh no no no, I'm, you know, I'm certainly uh, real humble about this. Yeah, mm-hmm, yeah, you should notice that. Yeah, <laughs> I do it more often than I like to admit, and I've tried to catch myself on it a few times, but it's hard because it is so tempting, and everybody's, you know. If, if somebody doesn't catch it, they're like, oh, well, that's real humble of them, which yeah. only feeds into it. Yeah, I've I've been there, too, um, probably this week, and it's only Monday. Tell me about it. All right. So that's a lot about pride. Let's talk about using pride in stories and games. This shows up a lot. Shockingly, the original sin of man is a common trait in fictional characters. Who would have well, guessed? Well, it's very versatile. Uh, let's, let's break it down a little bit. Uh, first thing, it's very useful in identifying who's a villain and who's a hero. Yeah. Kind of to that end, we, especially I, if you listen to episode 50, tend to identify with everyman heroes. Um, and they're often opposed by an antagonist who despises weak, poor, needy, People, you know, the sort of people that we're instructed as Christians to be compassionate towards and take care of. Yep. So pride is actually in that list is manifesting several different ways in the antagonist. Um, you've got contempt is probably the biggest one there where, you know, you see the traditional haughty noble, that oh, cliche. Yeah. That's that's pride where you refer to yourself as someone's better. Definitely pride. Anytime somebody uses the rabble. Yeah. You know they're a bad guy. <laughs> or or the, the common or the great unwashed or Oh yes. But they're so poor and dirty. Yeah. It's it's a classic shortcut to this person is bad. Yeah. It can be hilarious or it can be genuinely chilling, depending on how it's used. Yeah. Uh megalomania, speaking of things that can be um chilling or cheesy, depending on how they're used. Megalomania is a big one. That's kind of the belief that you should be in charge, that you should be given more power. Uh, <laughs> the GURPS basic set describes it as being a fanatic for yourself, hmm. uh, which yeah. I think is actually a really good definition of megalomania. I like uh, that. Combine that with absolute confidence in your own moral superiority for characters like Judge Frollo from uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame or Inspector Javert from um, uh, Les Mis. Uh, Victor Hugo was particularly good at uh, portraying this in his antagonists. Yeah. And I want to hit on that last point for a little bit because you know that role-playing game trope about paladins and how everybody hates the party paladin? Oh, it's yeah. when they give into this sort of absolute confidence in their moral superiority that 
that paladin goes from a fun character to the character everybody at the table hates maybe only slightly less than the kinder thief who only steals the most valuable weapons and armor instead of oh hey that's a really cool rock yeah because one is annoying and the other might run you through for some perceived slight against his code well yes and it also is a problem kind of at the table as much as in a character it's a way to say this character, you know, needs to be the center of attention. And you'll find that for most of these. For gaming characters, often it's an excuse to put the character in the spotlight. But in this case, when we're talking about that sort of uh, overbearing paladin, it's that busybody, I know best, you know, you aren't good enough kind of paladin that gets on everybody's nerves. Because, like we said, that sort of pride just is impossible to stand. Yeah, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, though. Let's, let's, a bit, uh, but yeah. these are all interlinked concepts, so we can't just, Very you know, true, yes. It's, this is one of those where it's going to be hard to say, all right, only in-game, only out-of-game. Yeah, it is hard to separate this particular one, because it, it bleeds in both directions. Yeah. Uh, other forms of pride that commonly manifest in games, ingratitude. Uh, again, a good sign that somebody is, uh, you know, not a good person you do something for them and they're not very thankful for it sometimes comic the crotchety old man uh sometimes that sort of slimy well you know what have you done for me lately kind of person yeah but this also manifests in uh is this all i get attitudes from player characters oh yeah this along with um murder hoboism is probably one of the worst player character stereotypes out there, and it's there for a reason. I think they're kind of from the same root in many cases, because... Sure, yeah. That, you know what? I, I'm a player character. Look at me. I'm I'm a powerful fighter. You haven't done everything I said and more? Well, it's time to kill you. I killed all the rats in your basement. Where's my thousand gold? Right. And then, of course, if the NPC doesn't bow and sca- scrape and stroke your ego and... Of course, through extension, the player's ego. Well, then, of course, that cannot be stood. Yeah. Uh, we've also got vanity on this list. Yes. Again, a common red flag. Personal vanity, I think, is more common. You know, oh, look, it's this person who takes great pride in their appearance. Well, what was that phrase that you used in episode 50? The prettiest elf? <laughs> Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Very common way to say this person is not a good person or is, you know, they're very selfish. They are obsessed with their looks, things like that. Their dress, their natural beauty, the riches they're wearing, that sort of thing. For a particularly scary example of how bad this can go, look up Elizabeth Bathory sometime. I actually don't know that character. Uh, That's the noblewoman, historical one who would bathe in the blood of young women to try and restore her own youth. Ah, yes, that one. She, along with, you know, Vlad the Impaler is one of the roots of a lot of vampire legends. Of course, social vanity, since we're talking about nobles, is kind of a big deal as well. And it's often more of a, I can't be seen doing this, right? How how often have you heard that from characters or from other people? You know, I, I can't be seen doing that with you. Well, if it's the right thing to do, why would it matter if you're seen? You can and you should be. Yeah. Right. I, I can't be seen with you lot. That sort of you know, combining both contempt and vanity. And people who are social climbers often have this form of pride. Yeah, it's a, it's a common uh, earmark of power. 
It's it like, is. you and, know, I have to maintain this sanitized image or it's going to be a threat to my power. Right. Absolutely. Power is one of the things that the prideful really enjoy because if you have power over another, you're superior to them. Yeah, it reinforces what they've felt in their hearts all along, that they right. are, in fact, better and dominant and able to impose their will upon the universe if – well, if, if not the whole thing, at least their tiny corner of it. Exactly. The, often, you know, the difference between you know a petty office dictator and a terrifying world dictator is simply scope. It's the yeah. same instinct. And this is one that I think a lot of role-playing game characters fall into because – it's often a reward that's given out in a game or a goal for a character. Uh, sometimes a backstory element leads to it, things like that. And so the social climber or people who hold their position in society as being really important, it's very common for that to show up in games. And sometimes, of course, there's just, no, no, we're murder hobos. But it's often one or the other. Well, and just as a quick aside, for an interesting example of just how unnecessary this can be, take mm -hmm. a look at the current Pope. Yeah. Francis is a genuinely humble guy. Mm -hmm. You know, he's willing to be seen with anybody he can minister to. He's taken flack for it, and he doesn't care. Right. And a lot of people who aren't Catholic, including myself, really like the guy for that. And I'm sure the Catholics are every bit as happy with him. I just... Don't talk to very many of them very often. There's not a whole lot in this area. It's a largely yeah. Protestant area. Yeah, same here. But yeah, it's that sort of humility that runs counter to this and which makes it all the more shocking because we that level of pride that we have is so ingrained that we don't expect that. So let's let's talk a little more about heroes because hubris is maybe the the biggest dramatic flaw that anybody can put into a character. This idea that your own actions and your own pride cause your downfall. Well, it was certainly good enough for Homer and Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. Characters who set themselves up as moral authorities, for example, they tend to fall victim to corruption. Characters who believe that they can do a thing or change the world on their own often fall victim to it. Uh, look at Oedipus, for example, for a, a classic Greek tragedy. Uh, it's it's commonly a tragic flaw. Oedipus is told, oh, you know, you're going to kill your father and marry your mother. And Oedipus says, no, I can change that fate. And, of course, he goes and in attempting to change the fate that he's predicted to have, runs headlong into it and does exactly what he was predicted to do, which goes to show that you can't escape fate. That's the whole point of the play. Throughout the Christian world and really throughout dramatic writing, really throughout the world – this comes up again and again because it's such a universal flaw. So in an antagonist, besides just signaling that this is the bad guy, which is a useful piece of shorthand to have as the GM for sure, this makes a good in for clever players. Um, if somebody is kind of as we discussed earlier, if somebody is blinded by their own pride, well, those blind spots make a really good place to slip a knife in if you need to. Yeah, look at, you know, the Death Star. Oh, we are invincible. We can never be defeated by this army of small craft. Cue massive explosion. <laughs> well, Grand Moff Tarkin 
little engineer runs up, says, sir, uh, we've figured out their strategy and there is actually a vulnerability. We need to get you off the ship. And he says, leave in our moment of triumph. And I don't remember the rest of the line because I'm not a Star Wars buff, but I think we all know the scene. (laughs) To put this a, a funnier way, there's a list that's been on the Internet for decades at this point called Peter's Evil Overlord List. This is not me, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> no, but it'd be funnier if it was. But It would be, but it's not me. <laughs> it's been around for ages. Found at eviloverlord.com, which, by the way, if you want to have a have a villain who is a very clever, interesting villain, read yeah, through this list. very dangerous. <laughs> pick a few things that your villain does that are smarter than your average villain, and you'll get a lot of fun out of it. And this one I particularly like, number 24. I will maintain a realistic assessment of my strengths and weaknesses. Even though this takes some of the fun out of the job, at least I will never utter the line, No, this cannot be. I am invincible. After that, death is usually instantaneous. (laughs) Another personal favorite is number 22. No matter how tempted I am with the prospect of unlimited power, I will not consume any energy field bigger than my head. (laughs) It's a good list, but it points to a common trope that we use with our villains, which is that pride and hubris and that longing for power are a good way to take that villain down often in their moment of triumph be aware of that take advantage of it and i would say if you have that sort of character build that flaw in because there's nothing more satisfying on a visceral level and if that's something that you want to include you can now that i say it i'm not sure that as christians we should even be recommending that but there is something satisfying about it well I mean, we certainly had some fun with that plant manager in the first run of our Shadowrun game. Oh, that's he true. He was very I, prideful. He was pri- Yeah, that's true. Okay. Whether he learned from all the mayhem that our group shoveled his way is doubtful, but it was still fun. Yeah. I've. Uh, okay. Spoiler alert. I'm looking for a way to bring him back in because you <laughs> people hated him. The whole player character group hated him so much. I just figure he's got to show back up at some point. Oh, yeah. We we went out of our way to mess with this dude. Yeah. And, and you've done that in a couple of cases, kind of for that same reason. Oh, yeah. It's, it's so much fun to tweak the nose of somebody like that. Yeah. One other note, mostly about villains, but I think it's also a common protagonist trap, again, especially in RPGs. Pride very quickly leads to this sort of ends justifies the means thinking, where what I'm doing is so important that I can run roughshod over anyone, I can do whatever is most convenient in order to make it happen. There's a difference between a game of hard choices, where you've got to do something and the thing you have to do is still costly, but the alternative is even worse. A lot of post-apocalyptic games have that sort of thing. There's a difference between that and power struggle games where people are just pawns to be used or games where the protagonists are difficult to distinguish from the antagonist because they have so much power and use it use it so freely that innocents are repeatedly caught in the crossfire and i've i've played in games like that where the player characters were scarier in many ways than the antagonists because we were just like well We've got this problem to solve. What if we blew up a mountain? Yeah. <laughs> so, Peter, I know you've been playing this war of mine. Yes. Yes, I that have been. comes at this same idea from the perspective of those caught in the crossfire, right? You've got these people who are trying to survive a war that they have no part in, 
but the powers that be have decided their lives are acceptable losses in a conflict that doesn't really involve them. Well, and there's more than that, too, because one of one of the things that's really interesting is that the game tempts you with pride to go and do terrible things in order to survive. So Mm -hmm. you'll have characters that are starving to death or that are suffering from, you know, a bleeding injury or that are really, really sick. And by the way, none of this is portrayed in a particularly visually graphic fashion in the game. There's some harsh language, but the violence is actually very understated. Mm-hmm. But um, so you'll you'll send out your scavenger at night and you can only send one because everybody else needs to kind of hold the fort while they're gone. And you'll get into these situations where it's like, well, there's these other people who are just trying to survive like we are and they have some supply that we need. Should I go take it from them by force? Should I sneak in and steal it? Do we try and find some that's just an unclaimed rubble and, you know, risk the lives of the the people that are suffering from illness or injury or what do you do? Yeah. And, you know, so far I've been trying to play my my little group of survivors as pretty decent, morally upright people. And I think the farthest I have made before they all died was day 28. Mm. So I have no idea how long... It goes. Uh, I don't know what date it ends on. I know it's possible to win the game because there's achievements and so forth in there, but I haven't managed it. So, yeah, kind of on the war theme, I had a conversation with a, a very old friend of mine who's currently in training to be a Holocaust historian about uh, genocide and ends justify the means. I'm going to quote directly from a post that he made to me. Eerily close to how one of today's leading Holocaust historians explains the mechanisms of genocide, always done out of utopian, never mere anger, always believed as gospel, never debated, always certain of necessity and views. So, yeah, if you want some proof that terrible things can be done out of pride, look at the Holocaust. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, we certainly don't need to go even that far, but it all comes from the same root. Yep. So, from mass genocide, let's pull it back to our tables. Yes, because genocide is very depressing to talk about for any length of time. It is. So, let's talk about it from, as usual, both perspectives, player side and the GM side. Okay. And these are not necessarily exclusive, but it's a convenient framework. Uh, Spotlight hogging. This is probably the biggest one. It's basically saying, I want to be the center of attention. Yeah. And... We got two sub things underneath this that kind of fall under the same umbrella. Uh, Mechanical spotlight hogging or munchkinism. I need to be special and I can break this stupid game. Right. Some mechanical power gaming is fun and interesting because people like playing with numbers. Yeah. If you have kind of an engineering mindset about it, that's a little different than I want to show these other people who's boss. Yeah, I've joked about this before, but I went through with Brandon and Peter and demonstrated just how much of a power gamer I was at one point. Uh, and carefully took them through the not terribly long process of building a character in uh, D&D 3.5 who can do about 1.6 billion D6 damage in one go, one turn. Can do that a few times a day. It's not hard. Yeah, and then you also demonstrated it um, when we were playing Magic together a little bit with that darn painter servant deck. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's the same sort of thing, although that was just more of a Oh, well, this looks fun. 
that's not fun. Like, it's not fun to play against. Wait, where's my library? It's gone. It's all gone. It was here. It's gone. Exactly. (laughs) And that's one of the reasons I've stopped playing Magic is because unlimited, you know, legacy stuff is just let's have the most broken, unfun combinations and just see who draws their combo first. Yeah. And it wasn't fun. But that can happen where it's just, hey, I like tinkering. And that's fine. But often, especially in groups where power gaming is not common and there's one person who power games a lot, often it's, look, look at me, look at how different I am, look at what I can do that you can't do. Breaking the game is often just a side effect. It's a way of, or sometimes it's a way of saying, look at the power I have over your game and your fun. But I think it's usually just a side effect. (laughs) Conversely, have you ever seen accidental power gaming at a table? Yes. It's yes, hilarious. I, I remember way back in D&D 3.0, um, one of the guys decided that he wanted to play a druid because, you know, it just sounded neat to him. Yeah. So the rest of us played various other things, and nobody really realized just how unbalanced druids were in comparison to all of the other player character classes and 3-0 until, I don't know, about seven, eight levels into that game where it's like, wait, he can do what and what and what how many times a day and do what yeah. while he's doing what? Wait, and and he took Wild Shape, which lets him yeah, cast wild spells spell. yeah. while shapeshifted? Yeah, and it was, it was nothing that he was trying to power game or anything. He just really thought the idea of playing a druid was cool. And all of a sudden it's like, uh, so there's him and the rest of us. Yeah. No, I have ended games with the GM looking at me and me looking at the GM and us just like simultaneously saying, so we need to fix that. (laughs) And that's okay. Mistakes happen. And it's funny when it happens. But when you're doing it just to be the center of attention, that's a problem. And kind of on the opposite end of that spectrum, Mary Sue characters. I'm going to stop you for just a second. This isn't the other end of the spectrum. This is a different axis. Oh, okay. It's a different axis on which to hog the spotlight. I'll grant you that. But the Mary Sue character, you know, who doesn't have mechanical prowess necessarily, but which wants to be the center of attention because it can't fail. Right. And sometimes the person who wants to be involved in everything and have their hooks in everything. Oh, of course I know him. Oh, you know, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. The person who won't let go of the spotlight. Yeah, that can be me sometimes, come to think of it. Here's the thing. Like I said, these aren't mutually exclusive. I know I, as a GM, have done this. I won't stop talking and let you guys play sometimes. I want to tell you guys just how cool the thing I came up with is. That's okay. We usually run over you at some point. Well, yes, at some point. But you have to run over me, and that's a problem. That's not a regular one. Uh, Another one that comes up that's another kind of stereotypical one is cheating. Uh, fudging die rolls, writing extra stuff on character sheets. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, I've I've also been guilty of die roll fudging. Yeah, and disturbingly recently, not like in our games, but before then, it was a real problem for me because if I failed, I didn't get things done, and uh, that wasn't interesting. Some of that was a problem with the games that I was in, but also it was just well, no, I want this to look cool. I want to look cool. Yeah, I've I've done that before in my gaming history, too. One of the nice things about Savage Worlds, to go on a brief tangent, is that by putting bennies in there, it really discourages this, because it's like, oh, I didn't get what I wanted. I just spent a benny and re Yeah, let me just try again. Yeah. Yeah. But even then, I'll tell you, I and I have managed it so far, but I have to be real honest and careful with myself about the number of bennies my NPCs have for exactly that reason. 
you know, and sometimes this comes into just, well, I don't want this NPC to, to die, or I don't want the story to change from what I've come up with. It's a GM problem typically, but sometimes it's a player problem too, that unwillingness to share the plot with the other people at the table or the dice. Well, fortunately for you, excessive NPC mortality is not a problem in our Shadowrun game. I think the body count sits at two, and one of them was gored by an elasmatherium, so it doesn't count. (laughs) (laughs) But even then, you know, there's been the temptation to be like, Peter's downing him in one shot. Can I? No, no, no. Let it roll with the dice. Got to roll with the dice. But it's hard. Let let the player have the exploding die roll. Let the player have the exploding die roll. Forget the exploding die roll. That's fun. But when it's, oh, he's one shot him. Benny, no, no, I got to run with it. But it's it's a real temptation to make him last another round so I can show you how cool he is. Like, you remember the um, the guy with the metal staff and the wide yeah, brim metal staff and- showed up, was really awesome on a motorcycle. You took him down before he got to do anything. Yeah, we, we yeah. all looked at him and we're like, this guy is clearly a threat. Gang pile. <laughs> yes. And you all went first and he was dead before he I like I think he managed to get around the van. Well, he wasn't dead, but he was definitely out of the fight. Yeah. And so we we clobbered him good. I had to work so hard. And honestly, I might have given in. I don't remember. I might have given in at, at least once to just be like, no, I got him. Get him to at least show off how cool he is. And eventually <laughs> I let it happen. But it's a really hard thing for a GM to do. And I think it's a hard thing for players to do because there's nothing more frustrating than not being able to show off how cool you are. Right. Well, and the other thing, too, is I think sometimes this is done out of fear. Um, you'll get you'll get players with a new GM that they don't know how harsh the person is, and they're like, I really don't want my character to die from missing this one die roll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And things like, you know, jump checks when you're trying to get across a chasm or climbing rolls or that sort of thing. I mean, if your GM is harsh enough, they could be like, all right, roll 23d6 falling damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or sometimes... It's, I know if I give you any failure, you're going to not just, you know, mess with me, but humiliate me for it. Yeah, I've seen that before, too. By the way, that's a toxic thing to do as a GM. Don't do it. It is, but let's not pretend those people don't exist. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, I have seen that. I've heard the horror stories. I've been in that game once or twice. Yeah, it's sucks the fun right out of the game. My opinion is that a lot of times... This sort of bad player behavior is a learned response to GMs. Yeah, some of it I think is just plain old pride, but yeah, it can be a learned response. Well, and other problems, yes. I mean, nobody's perfect. That same sort of unwillingness to change or share your plot, I think, shows up in the unstoppable NPC, what Fear the Boot has so politely termed Baron Von Badass. Yeah. It's about the only time I'm going to be able to say that on the show, but there you are. You know, the NPC who, no matter what you do, you can't hurt him or do anything to him because he's just so awesome. He's the GM's pet NPC. It's frustrating because they won't let you contribute to the story is really what it comes down to. Yeah. And another form that that takes that I've heard horror stories about is marginalizing the PCs in favor of a pet heroic NPC. Oh, yes. The GM is like, I'm going to play Doc Savage, and you're going to play the assistants, and Doc Savage is going to do everything, and you're going Mm -hmm. to marvel at how awesome he is. Write a novel. (laughs) I have not had this happen to me. I had a GM who had a GM PC, and there were some problems with that, but he never fell into this particular trap. But I've heard horror stories of players whose GM 
would let them get to basically the climactic moment and then their NPC would do something completely unrelated to the rules and steal the victory from them. And, you know, I've had this happen, too, where third parties show up. And this has actually happened in in our Birthright game, where some third party shows up and all of a sudden it's just like, we had a plan set out and you decided, oh, I want to show off real quick and went in and scooped victory out from under us. We still won in the sense of the guy we were fighting a war against lost, but you had someone else come in and just, you know, win for us. Well, that's boring. Yeah. You can't have the victory. It's mine which, as the GM, is a terrible thing to do. Yeah, I think an important thing to remember as the GM is the setting may be yours, but the story is not. Yeah, and I, I would even argue that the the setting is not entirely yours, but the story that happens within that setting. Yeah, that, well, the setting may be your own creation, but the story is not, and the variation of the setting that you're going to wind up with at the end of the game after your players have moved around and changed parts of it isn't going to be solely yours either. And that's one of the things that's cool about role-playing, by the way. Yeah, very much so. Uh, The last thing that I want to touch on is rule lawyering and setting lawyering. And I want to clarify, there's a difference between being somebody who knows the rules really well. And can offer them up when prompted. Right. Being knowledgeable in the rules. Is a good thing. (laughs) Being pedantic about them is annoying, but it is not quite the lawyering that we're talking about here. Uh, it, it is perhaps its own form of pride where, you know, look how much I know. But this is essentially cheating with the rules by misinterpreting them. Um, basically, my definition, my working definition of a rules lawyer is somebody who, when they quote a rule, is never on the wrong side of it. Yeah. Uh, if it's, oh, no, no, it works this way because it's advantageous for my character. And then the next time it comes up, oh, no, 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 it, that same rule works this other way because it's advantageous for my character, that person is a rules lawyer, just plain and simple. And then there's setting lawyering. (laughs) Yeah. Setting setting lawyering happens a lot. And I've been guilty of this as a GM because when I ran my Eberron campaign, I was the only person who knew a lot about Eberron. So whenever anybody got anything wrong, it was, no, 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 no. It works like this. You have to do things this way. You have to do things my way. Or you have to do things the author's way or... Yeah. I think I've gotten better about this in the Shadowrun game. I think. I I think the only place where you've really stepped in and corrected is that for some reason, I just cannot wrap my brain around the fact that the Matrix and Shadowrun doesn't use TCP IP. Yes. And I keep trying to do stuff that would work great on modern networking hardware. Yes. But would not work in Shadowrun. It is fantasy internet hardware. Uh, Let's be honest. It works completely differently. And part of that is just to make it more interesting. Yeah. Well, but I mean, it was intentionally designed that way by the people who made the setting. So. Well, no, it was designed that way because the people who made the setting had no idea how computers worked. But that's not the point. Do you think that's still true after five editions? They did figure out that wireless access was a thing, finally. It's, it's true. It took them a while, but they did figure it out. a while, but they got there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're sorry, Catalyst. <laughs> no, Catalyst finally got there. All yeah. right. FASA. Yeah, okay. Come on, guys. Well, that they were, FASA was back in the 80s. Wireless wasn't well, a thing originally, when they were. Yes. Third edition. <laughs> uh, no, come on. And now we've gone on a lengthy Shadowrun tangent. <laughs> we have, but to, to pull it back. I know I have corrected you guys in a few places like, oh, no, 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 it's it's really like this. And I think I have done it okay 
just to kind of get everybody on the same page. Yeah, just it, I mean, some correction is necessary, or yeah. we don't know what to assume or how to interpret things. It's like, yeah, but my Eberron game that I ran a few years, you know, several years ago, or tried to run several years ago, it was very much no, 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 stop imagining things. Yeah, all the it imagining has, has been done by other people, and yes. you are not one of them. My interpretation of the books that I have read is the only one. None of you can have that fun. Yeah. That was a real problem. One of the multitude of reasons that that game died a horrible and well-deserved death. All right. Anything else that we want to talk about as far as pride goes? No, I I think I'm good on any points that I would have. I think we've covered it all. I suspect this is the kind of topic that a lot of our listeners will have feedback on. I would love to hear that. I certainly hope so. Our Google Plus group, which is linked on our website, savingthegamepodcast.org, the community is called Saving the Game. Comment on our blog post or our Facebook post, anything like that. Bring yep. it up in the, the Inroads Ministries Tavern to bring things full circle. Anything yeah. like that. We'd really love to hear some feedback on this. And if we don't weigh in, try us on a different social network than the one you posted on. We might just be oblivious. Yeah, I've actually kind of been neglecting the Google Plus group lately, which is a real shame. I need yeah, to me too. get that going. Yeah, to all of you who hang out there, I am sorry. It's... So my work has been interesting and I have this bad habit of cycling through social networks that I pay attention to. And right now I'm on a Facebook kick. Previously it was Twitter and then I was at Google Plus for a while. It's just I can't hold them all yeah, in my head. How in the world does Derek White do it? Because he uses all of them regularly and I'm just kind of in awe of that man's He's ability to man. use social media. He's a madman. That's the only answer. Anyway, so next time I think is going to be humility. Unless something happens, but certainly uh, we're going to be doing humility very soon. So yep. look forward to that. And from both of us here at Saving the Game and Brandon, too, I'm sure. Uh, I do want to thank all of you for listening again. Really want your feedback that I'm really looking forward to that. And I think that's all we got, folks. Have a good one. We'll see all you right. next time. Catch you later. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through InroadsMinistries.com, RPGPodcasts.com, Stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at SavingTheGamePodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.